But here's the thing. Here's what I experience every few months or so. Every few months, somebody will come up to me after one of our gatherings, or I'll meet somebody out in the city and they begin to learn what I do as a profession, profession if we can call it that. And without fail, every few months, somebody will come up to me and say, I want to change. I want to change. Now, as I hear this statement, what most people are asking, I know what most people are asking because I've been at this for a while. I know I look super young, but like 14 years of vocational ministry, I know. You learn some things. I'm kidding, by the way. Ava caught a gray hair a few weeks ago. It's just demoralized my life and my ego. It's all good. We're actually going to talk about a theology of aging at the end of this, so I will correct myself later on. But, you know, I've learned some things over 14 years. And when I hear people say, I want to change, typically what they're thinking is this. Give me a quick fix. Maybe a book to read, maybe a podcast to listen to, or maybe if you just pray for me, then boom, right? Some spectacular encounter with God will change my life forever. Now, if I were honest, I hope there's room for the pastor dude to be honest. When I hear people say, I want to change, I get a little skeptical. Can I be honest? Is that all right? And it's not that I don't think information or an encounter with the living God can change people. I believe that. I believe these things can happen. But I've also seen over the years that these things on their own, on their own, are not that transformative. I've been at this long enough now to see that people come in and a lot of times when they say this, they want a quick fix, a zap from heaven, wanting to be transformed, but often avoiding the long road that Jesus calls his apprentices or his disciples on. And so, at the beginning of Praxis Church and the turn into becoming Praxis Church, we're looking at our core values as a community. And this teaching is actually the second part of a teaching that we did a couple weeks ago around the idea of spiritual formation. Spiritual formation has been something that has really come to the forefront over the last little while. So if you missed a couple weeks ago, I loathe self-promotion, but you should probably go back and listen because we got the ball rolling around this idea of being spiritually formed into the ways of Jesus. And last time we looked more at the theological side of things, the, the theological side of the teachings, and now we're going to probably look more at the practical side of how this w- works. Last week we looked and we saw that even Jesus knew that his teachings on their own wouldn't bring transformation. Jesus ultimately knew that his teachings needed to be practiced, and it was a way in which it formed his disciples, his teaching, if we want to build our lives on good foundation. Now, Matthew chapter 7. Just look at what Matthew chapter 7 says over and over. Look, look at verse 12. It says this. In everything, Jesus says, this is by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. Jesus says, treat others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. Verse 17 and 19, it says this. In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 21, not everyone says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And what you'll notice, go back for a sec, what you'll notice is that 
Anything highlighted in bold there is exactly the same word in Greek, poieo. You've heard this a lot. And what the translators do for us in English is they just translate it different ways at different times, but it's exactly the same word, to do or to fashion or to bear. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to. One more example, verse 24. If you keep going down, he says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and poieo does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and and the winds beat against it, but it did not collapse because its foundation had been laid on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, and again, poieo, does not do them, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was fully destroyed. The reality is, and there's even other instances throughout the book of Matthew. I was even reading in my devotional yesterday, 1323, I think it says this. But as for what was sown on good soil, so Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower here. For what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Jesus, you with me? Jesus over and over is looking at this idea that transformation is not just hearing, but it's actually practicing. That transformation happens through practice and formation. And here's the thing we don't like, friends. Formation takes time. Every time somebody comes and says, I want to change, I want to ask back, do you have some time? Because oftentimes we want to zap from heaven, and this is just not typically the way it works. Are there exceptions to the rule? Some of you think Paul of Tarsus, who falls off a horse and has this dramatic encounter with God. Certainly there are encounters that people have, but transformation comes through this idea of practice and formation. The master apprentice of Jesus, his name is Dallas Willard, he puts it like this. He talks about the easy yoke, the way of Jesus following him into his teaching, into his life. He says, the secret of the easy yoke then is to learn from Christ how to live our total lives, how to invest all of our time and our energies of mind and body as he did. We must learn how to follow his preparations, the disciplines for life and God's rule that enabled him to receive his father's constant and effective support while doing his will. We have to discover how to enter into the disciplines from where we stand today and no doubt how to extend and amplify them to suit our needy cases. I love Willard. We're following Jesus into his life and into his disciplines. Are you out there, people? Are you with me? This is so foundational for us as Praxis Church. We want to be formed into the likeness of Christ and into the way of Jesus together. Um, With that said, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about maybe the greatest single idea in the Christian life, probably outside of the fact that Jesus is Lord. You ready? Now, here's the thing. This is one discussion I think most churches don't have. It's going to be a little more philosophical. I hope that's okay. We're not going to, again, do as much exegesis, but... This has been a humongous paradigm shift for me over the last number of years. And it's this simple idea, and I hope you'll track with me. All of us are disciples. All of us in this room are disciples. And here's the thing. 
If you grew up with flannel board Christianity like I did, most of us think of the disciples as people that were mutually exclusive to Jesus of Nazareth. But the reality is, is when you look at the world that we live in, discipleship is not mutually exclusive to Jesus. All of us in this room are disciples of something or someone. No one is exempt from this. No one in this room is exempt from following something. We are all disciples. I think it was the reformer John Calvin. Whoa, a Calvin quote that doesn't come a lot, but it's coming today. John Calvin, love it, it's great. He says this, the idea of humanity is that the human heart is an idol factory. And basically what Calvin was trying to communicate is that all of us are worshiping something. The human heart is bent towards worshiping something. And what we worship is evident by what we give our time and our attention to and is clearly evident what we worship by what we love. Now here's the thing. As a pastor, dude, honestly, this discussion is so freeing, right? So instead of self-declarations and self-declaring statements about who we are and what we love, I come from the posture through this idea that those things are evident in what we practice. So you want to know what you love? What you put your time, what I put my time, my attention, my energies into, those are the things are the things that I love. If I were to sit down with you over coffee or beer or whatever, over time, I would begin to see what you love and what you worship. It would come out of you just like it would come out of me. And in our cultural moment, some of us are disciples of Jesus. I think many of us in this room are disciples of Jesus, but so are some disciples of things like secular ideas and social media, and net Netflix on its own. <laughs> if you weren't here last week. Yeah, I pride myself on being pretty culturally in tune. I did not know what Netflix and chill meant at all. And I got home and Heather was like, you'll never say that ever again in your life. I thought it was hanging out, and that's not, just to let you know, that... That's not what it means. The point is this. We're all disciples of something. It could be sex, government, money, power, politics, brunch, right? Autonomy in our day and age. The weekly kombucha run or pickup at the weekend market. All of us in this room are worshiping something. And man, this has been so freeing for me, especially leading a younger community. You know, you'll hear atheists or agnostics say things like, you weak people of faith, right? I don't believe or follow anything. Yeah, you do. Oh, I don't worship like you weak people. Oh, you worship. You worship. You may not worship the God of the universe, but we are all worshipers. What needs to be defined is who or what we're actually worshiping. And this has been freeing for me because it calls us into a philosophy that says every single one of us with this heart, we posture it towards something. And the Jesus community is this community that comes around and is formed and shaped by the way of Jesus and our heart begins to be postured towards the king and the kingdom. But the, the, the idea is this, and I've seen this now over the years, very few of us, including myself at times, pay attention to what's actually forming us. Very few of us actually Think deeply about the things that are forming us as disciples, whether that's of Jesus or something else. Now, I promised last week, or a couple weeks ago when we were talking, a guy named James K.A. Smith has been a huge voice over the last number of years, especially through his little book. He created a little popular book of his ideas called You Are What You Love. Some of you have read this book in this room, and it has 
his idea around formation and liturgies has been, I think, the most formative idea the last few years that's not only helped pastors, but churches around this idea of worship and formation. I just want to take a couple minutes, if there's freedom in this room, just to highlight some of his ideas, just to show you what we're talking about when we talk about the heart being an idol factory. Is this okay? Is that right? So I really, if you haven't read this, it's a phenomenal book. Smith is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College up the back. I see you. Woo, woo. Um, Some alumni and uh, just tremendous work. So this is the idea. Smith argues that liturgies or practices are the things that actually have formative power. These are the things that shape us. So what we practice is the thing that shapes us. So in the West, we tend to assume the way to make disciples and form character is to give people information which will lead them to make good choices and become more like Jesus. But think about it. If that were true, all we'd need to do is read books or articles and we would be transformed. How's that going for you? You know, and I'm sure none of us here have Googled how to have a body like Mark Wahlberg in their mid to late 30s. Any, any, me, me either, Right? If it, was that, if it was that easy, friends, we would just read the book or the article and boom, it would happen. I love, and I shared this a couple weeks ago, Smith talks about being in Costco and he was sitting and he was reading this book on reference from his daughter about clean eating as he gets older. And so he's reading this Wendell Berry book about clean eating and highlighting it and just into it and then he realizes he's eating a hot dog in the Costco food court, Right. And so in the West, we do this. We think information and how we, th- and how we think is deeply important. But even when we do something silly or wrong, what do we say? What was I, what was I thinking? Smith would say we tr- tend to treat people fundamentally as knowers. But here's the thing. We're not simply knowers. Smith, he, in his work, he points to the church father Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it who articulated way back that we as humans are more than just brains on sticks. The most defining feature of our character is actually not what we know, but what we love, whether we can fully articulate it or not. With this in mind, he goes on and he talks about how to truly form a person, you actually have to get beyond their minds. Mind is a beautiful thing, but you have to get to their hearts or to their desires or to their affections. The other truth is that these loves are not, our loves as humans are often not formed logically. We may not even know, sitting in this room, what our loves are, let alone where our loves came from. So we don't love necessarily what we think. We learn to love and to, to, to desire long before we learn to think logically. Even deeper than this, and I know this is philosophical, but this, man, this preaches when it comes to formation so deeply that our loves, for the most part, are shaped by our bodies. So in the Western church, we don't talk a lot about our bodies. Um, We very much lean into Plato and his idea of separation of body and soul. But here's the thing. Our loves are involved in our bodies, in our emotions, not just in our minds. So Smith would say, like, developing our loves is more like learning to drive, remember that? Or playing the piano where it's instinctive and habitual or practicing a golf swing. And if you want to practice your golf swing, don't practice with me because I'm terrible. It's more like those things than it is like learning algebra or history. There's formation. 
Our loves are shaped by our routines, our rituals, our practices, or what we would call in the church, our loves are formed and shaped by our liturgies. So in the book, Smith actually, he does this. He takes a number of things uh, that he would call secular liturgies, and he shows how these things shape us and how they're designed or set up to make this point. So he uses, one of his examples is the mall. Yeah, baby. He says this, we enter the sanctuary, have our eyes drawn skyward to the vaulted past through the central meeting area. We wander through various side chapels like H&M or The Gap or Build-A-Bear, right? Any parents? Okay, so can I just stop and say something? Build-A-Bear, they just try and suck your life into that thing. Be careful. Birthday deals where it's like, yeah, my kid is five. Come get a Build-A-Bear for your age. And then you spend like 80 bucks on like all the accessories and like my Build-A-Bear has to be John Tavares. He doesn't have to be John Tavares. But anyways... So we enter in, we wander through the side chapels, he says, browsing the different offerings, experiencing multi-sensory worship through music and lighting and Manchu walk, food and drink and aromas and the like. Icons like mannequins and posters pointing to an idealized version of the good life, making transactions at altars, the checkout, the tills, in order to, to get closer to it and receive a benediction on the way out. Have a nice day. And when he, he wrote this, I was like, my goodness. We, there's things in our lives that form and shape us, and we are deeply unaware of it. You know, secular marketers have, and it's true, have a more holistic view of the human person than a lot of Christians do. They recognize the importance of patterns of behavior that form the heart, not just shape the mind. And that's what the mall does at times. It shapes our hearts. Smith would say that, and he uses this term, he would say that we're liturgical animals because we're fundamentally desiring creatures. We're embodied, practicing creatures whose loves and desires is aimed at something ultimate. See, I think Calvin was onto something. Our heart is bent towards something ultimate. And the idea is this. If we want to shape people's lives, we don't just need to shape their logic in the church. We talked about right brain, left brain stuff last time in Millennials, and I think it's true. We need to sh- the church needs to shape people's loves, which also means shaping their practices and their liturgies. You know, the idea is this, that there's a difference between knowing something and doing something, and there's a greater difference between want- doing something and wanting to do something. There's a difference between in your head knowing something and doing it. There's a much greater difference between doing something and wanting to do something. And the idea is this, there's power in our habits. They form us. So when people say, you want to change? You don't have to just think about your mind and what you think. That's a no-brainer, no pun intended. Obviously, we think about those things. But if we really want to change as people, transformation, we have to reorient our lives through daily habit. And we don't talk about habit and formation enough in the church. The funny thing is, is we get this with other disciplines, right? We get that habit and practice in other disciplines actually is the thing that changes us. So I, have, I said last time, we have three barbaric boys who like eat, drink, sleep, breathe hockey. And I think it slipped out of my mouth. I said they, they're at the rink, I'm at the rink six or seven hours a day last time. That was not true. That was meant to be a week, okay? Some of you are like, do you have a job? Yes, I have a job. Yes, my kids, they go to school, right? But here's the thing with them. They all deeply love hockey, and here's what I didn't do. I didn't give them a book and say, read about it, and you'll be really great. 
and I didn't put on a YouTube video, though we watch lots of YouTube videos, and say, listen, if you watch this, you're going to be amazing. That's part of it. But as a dad, who they want to do this. Okay, I'm not pushing this on them. If they want to do this, as somebody who's played a lot of hockey in his life, I want skating to them to be as natural as breathing. And so this means hours upon hours upon hours of formation so that their natural response when it's time to play a game is to skate and to respond and to maneuver well. And what we often miss is that this little, this idea of incremental daily habits, these are the things that create us and shape us and make us who we are as people over time. A lot of people say, man, I just, I love to run a marathon one day, but you all know, you can't, if you've never run before, you can't just run a marathon tomorrow. What will happen? You will die. You will die. I've done it. I trained for a marathon and I still died. Ice bath for days. I missed my hockey playoffs because of this dang race, right? And without the daily work of putting kilometers on kilometers to to develop your body into running a marathon, that's what it takes. And yet, somehow, we think we're going to be more like Jesus if we just get a spiritual zap in a moment instead of the daily formation of practice that makes us like him. I was even thinking this morning, you know, these guys that lead us in music, they do a phenomenal job, and I've watched some of these guys grow up, and it's hours upon hours of practicing and working and rehearsing together and scales. And I think of Curtis, just like for years, this punk kid at EMG, right? Like just playing drums year after year. EMG was our youth group way back in the day. And just the hours upon hours it takes so that when it's time to play, it's the most natural thing to do. Very rarely with disciplines do we think at the end of the day, how did I get here? That's not... Typically, that's not how this works. It's formation over time. And you even think of destructive things. There are many destructive things. Things don't just happen out of nowhere. It's typically the little incremental things, whether the habit is towards a good thing or a negative thing, right? You can fill in the blank with what you want with that. This is how it works. We don't just wake up in the morning, oh, how did I get here? It's typically what our habits lead us to. Our habits, both good and bad, shape us. So, With all of this in mind, I think we're actually afraid to say it. We worship what we love. As humans, as the heart, we worship what we love. Again, not not much need for self-declaration and, you know, what you love. We know by the practices, and we ultimately worship what we love. How do I know this? Oh, baby, at Christmas time, our kids were in a musical during the day, and I went, and I thought I was going to be super early, And I walked into this little gym, and I honestly went half an hour early. Every seat was taken in the place, right? It was crazy to me. Like, people were sitting there in to get seats an hour early for their kids' play. What do we worship? I love my kids. But what do we worship? What do we worship? You know, for communal worship, oftentimes, it's like, oh, just relax. You know, come when you want. But for our kids, we'll we'll go an hour early, We'll stake out seats because there's a heart posture. We, and there's nothing wrong with loving your kids. But oftentimes we worship what we love. You know, I'm surrounded in our neighborhood with so many great people, with so many friends that honestly will travel to the ends of this province almost every weekend so that their kids can play in sports tournaments or activities. And there's nothing wrong with that. If anybody loves sports, you're looking at them. But do, we do what we love and ultimately we love what we worship. This is how it, you know, follow me? Is it getting hot in her? 
Is it getting, you all right? Okay. So this has freed me as a pastor. Honestly, it's freed me the last number of years, especially. Oh, I love, I love this church. Oh, you don't have to proclaim it. We'll know by how you practice. You don't have to tell us that. And honestly, I don't think you have to say much about your, the perpetual daily habits of your life. We will know. Now, this is fun, isn't it? If our habits shape our loves, then one of the questions that I have is what does this say about spiritual formation and the church? Uh, I don't know if you feel it, but I'm surrounded, and Heather, if she was here, we are surrounded, and probably you are too, by a gravitational pull towards people questioning the church, right? I'm a pastor dude, and I feel, and people know what I do, right? So I can imagine those of you guys sitting in the seats this morning and a part of our community, like I hear it all the time, is it worth it? Do Sunday mornings really make a difference? Like can't we do, I hear this all the time, can't we do something better with our time? And I'm not just talking about, obviously there's a secular, progressive you know, world out there that would question why as Jesus followers we would do this. But I'm not talking about the world, the post-Christian world out there. I'm talking about, this is people within the church that would pose this question, is it really is it really worth it? And so I know some of us in this room and some of us listening, we know and we feel it that oftentimes this is a pull, a gravitational pull to our attention. Heather and I have even experienced over the last few years pastors who have told us flat out, right? They've said to us flat out, hey, if I wasn't leading a church, I don't think I would be part of a community. And that's like really weird for us because we don't do this for money or anything like that. I mean, we're super blessed to be in a position where it's our vocation, but that's just so foreign to us. But we feel the gravitational pull around church. Is it worth it all around us? So here's what I want to do. I actually want to take this to the lab this morning. This is out of, a little bit out of character for us here. What I want to do is I actually want to open it up and we're going to throw up eight or 10 different things that we practice in our gathering. Now, don't get nervous. You don't have to speak out. But I've been really wrestling through this as, as a pastor, and I know as we kind of are drawn into this idea, does church really matter? One of the things I want to ask is, how do these things that we practice in our weekly Sunday gatherings, how do these things shape us? Because I think, here's one thing, I think if you begin to open up your mouth and you begin to share how this is formative, it's actually going to make a difference, and it's actually going to change you when you hear from other people that we're not just wasting our time. You following me? So, the gravitational pull, is it really worth it? Is church worth it? Well, let's talk about the things that we practice. First of all, something like pre-gathering prayer, right? We pray before gatherings at 10 in the morning. I'd love to hear. I have answers of my own too. But how does that shape you? How does that shape you? Sets the tone. Yeah, so it sets the tone, it prepares you. It's, it's not passive. I love that. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. So when you declare who we're praying for, it makes you aware of the different, even this morning, there's all sorts of things that have happened in our community and it made us aware. That's amazing. I think it teaches us to intercede, right? to stand with our brothers and sisters in contending prayer, which the Bible actually has a lot to talk about, contending prayer. The other thing is, the, one of the ways that it shapes us is I often hear people say, I really want to grow 
in prayer? Well, I think some of us need to hear others pray to actually develop our own prayer language. I always think, who would you rather shoot free throws with? Free throws with your brother-in-law or Steph Curry, right? You typically want to, I love my brother, right? I would love to shoot free throws with my brother, but I would probably, if I wanted to form into a good free throw shooter, I would want to shoot with Steph Curry. And I think actually, and I'm not saying that some of us are the Steph Curry of praying, but you get, you know, you get what I'm saying. If you want to pray, maybe you would get around people that actually pray and intercede and learn and hear. It, it actually takes practice, all right? That's just one pre-gathering prayer. What about this? This is a huge one. Music and singing. How does music, are we just wasting time here? Is this just like, is this just a little warm-up before the guy with the Britney Spears mic gets up and, you know, does the real stuff? Of course not, right? How does music and singing shape us? I think reading, like even understanding or reading lyrics while you're singing them and, and expressing them. Yeah. Then kind of like positions your heart to maybe understand what's being taught after that. Yeah. Expressing yourself. The f- songs are shaped to go after what I think even Smith is talking about, about our, our desires, for sure. What else? How does music and singing shape us? It's a good re- for me anyway, it's a reflection point of um, my week. Yeah. Well. It's, it's, it's a time of just me and, and Christ and just, you know, reflecting on, like Curtis said, the lyrics and just, uh, are they just words I know kind of or do I really truly believe in yeah. it? Yeah, so good. Do I truly believe this? And this is one thing that music does. I'll say this, God's people have always joined together in singing as an act of resistance to the powers and principalities at play. Always. You read the scriptures. A couple weeks ago, excuse me, a couple weeks, couple weeks ago, I was just overwhelmed in our music time as we sang as a community because I noticed I was standing at the back of the room and I just noticed how many families were holding their family members tight as they sang these songs together. And I just felt like this is an act of resistance. So much in in our community, so many families going through things, this was a way to put a stake in the ground and open up your mouth and sing with the greater community. You know, it's funny. It's kind of crazy. This journey as Praxis has been the great, February has been the greatest month ever. As a church launching, it has been like the greatest joy. Honestly, it's been the best. But there's also been a ton of pain over the last number of months. Relationships and family, a, a family in our community lost a baby that was ready to be born in the next month. There's other people in our community that have lost loved ones, kids, There's a great sister in our community going through cancer right now, somebody who sits at our table every Wednesday night. Imagine not having a place to sing. Like, imagine that. See, songs and music, as we're formed into this, do something that sermons can't. I just think of my kids. You know, they are continually declaring because of the repetition in our songs all throughout the week what we as a community and as a family sing. These are deeply formative Deeply formative things. What about this? Reading the Psalms out loud or public prayer and reading of Scripture. What does that do? For many of us, it's the one time a week we open our mouths and we read and we declare the Scriptures out loud. It's formative, baby. We do this for a reason. 
Or what about this? This is a good one. The connect time, you know, for us introverts, and at the end of the day, I'm introverted, and I've been very honest. If I were to visit a church, this, this moment in the gathering, I'd just be like, ah, right? If I wasn't the guy here, you know? Um, it would drive me crazy. And some of you are like, you come to Jesus right now, because, you know, and I'm, I'm very open and honest about this, but we haven't stopped it. Because I actually think the connect time partway through the gathering is actually formative. It's a, it's a, it's a declaration of something. What, what do you think that does? What is the connect time partway through, you know, that three or four or five minutes where you turn to somebody? What does that do? We're not doing it because we're bored. What does it do? Relationships, right? It can be awkward. I get it. But it's also intentional, it's a moment where we declare that music isn't the totality of our worship, that people matter, and that we discover our love for God, oftentimes through people. It's really, really important. What about teaching? How's teaching formative? Yeah, this is so good what you're saying. So context and history that oftentimes it's hard too when you're working a job, sometimes people that have more time connect and we are big on the context of the history. Obviously when we walk through the scriptures, you learn and lean into certain things that necessarily you hadn't seen through your daily walk, which is, I'll just say this, if ever there was a time where teaching, and I know it's like, okay, the guy who teaches most of the time, if there was ever a time where teaching is most important, it's, I think it's now in our post-Christian secular moment. Seriously, I'm dead serious. First of all, obviously a lot of people don't know the biblical story, both inside and outside the church. But think about it with, I want you to think deeply with me because I think it has to do with what you're saying. Think about the garden for a second. In the garden, did the Satan or the, the adversary or Satan as we kind of speak of him in the West, did the adversary come to Adam and Eve with a bazooka or a gun to their head? Obviously not. What did the adversary come to Adam and Eve with in the garden? Lies. The, the, the serpent came to them with an idea, right? Did God really say that? Is God really good? Maybe you could be like God if you did this and, and understand like him. And here's the thing, I actually, for our post-Christian moment, I actually think this is how the enemy works. In our moment, the adversary isn't coming with strong power, with a gun to your head, right? You know, you think of uh, different empires throughout history, oppressive empires. This is not Hitler and the regime that we're living in now under that. He, the enemy, the adversary is coming at us with lies, with bad ideas, and because of that, teaching in the church needs to be, I think, the weekly return to good ideas and the good idea of the gospel and the kingdom. You know, I had a few, a few of us uh, a couple weeks ago at our community meal. We're sitting around the table, and we sat late into the evening and had, a, I think, a great time just wrestling through even some contra controversial things within theology and faith. But I'll just say this, and those are beautiful moments, but the thing, too, is even with the teaching, I said to them, this is why I think we need to slow down. We're in a cultural moment right now, and we don't just need to exegete the text, which I think is important, but we also need to bring these things into our cultural moments, and sometimes it takes time. And I, I love homilies and short homilies and you know, some mainline communities do that, but I actually think the moment we're living in right now, we've actually gotta do things like what we're doing right now, really thinking deep culturally about how, about how things form us and shape us as people, right? Teaching is important, not just because this is the role, 
But honestly, it's important because of what it does to us. Responding in music, right? At the end of our gatherings, we respond because we're not just here to listen, but we're here to respond with our lives. What about this? What about the Eucharist, the bread and the cup that we do every single week? How does that shape us? Yeah? Right. So we can talk about James K. Smith and cultural formation, and yet at the end of the gathering, it always comes back to the bread and the cup as a reminder of Jesus' love and him going to the cross for us. It's so funny. I've talked to people about our transition of coming to the Eucharist table every week, and I hear this. It's so old school. You know what I say? Yep. Had another person say to me blatantly, that's so routine. You know what I said? Yep. You know, one of the things that the Eucharist does is we don't just experience salvation in our heads, but we taste it every single week. Not only is Jesus present in this time, we believe he's present in this time, but think about it. God also uses wheat and the vine. I know it's grape juice because of like, yeah, it is what it is. But, but God uses wheat and the vine to remind us of his love. That God's actually into our senses, not just into what we ascend to in our mind. I think of things like serving on a team. I just threw some of these in here. Serving on a team. How does that form us? It shows us that this is not just about myself. I'm here for something way bigger than myself. Even the practice of setting up and packing down in a room like this where we're a portable church, it just shows it's a forming practice that says we are a community and that every person plays their part. So, we can just like stand on the street corner and say, church is important, you should come. Like that's going to work in our cultural moment, right? Here's the thing. Is church worth it? It depends if you believe your habits shape you. Like if you believe your habits don't shape you, then I, this is, no, this is meaningless. But we seem to believe with every other discipline that our habits shape us into the likeness of something. So why not with the church? Obviously, you can see where I land. I believe that the gathered church is more important than ever, especially in secular soil. And while people I know, many of them, leaders and communities, question the church and the deconstruction of that, you know what's happened? In the deconstruction of this idea, is the church worth it? It's actually pushed me back to its truest form. I've gone the other way. I've had lots of friends say, this is dumb. For me, it's actually to think about it and deconstruct, which I think we all need to do. It's actually pushed me back into how important this is. All of us obviously brush our teeth. Do you love it? Right? Sometimes, I, can I be honest? I don't like brushing my teeth at times. Are you all right with that? But listen, I know that that practice is for my good. And I think what we do here on a weekly basis, our liturgies, our liturgies shape us more than we'll ever know. That this act, what we're doing here, is an act of counter formation. Throw up the next picture, can you? This is from my uh, devotional this week by a guy named Sky Jatani. He's great. He says the average Christian in America attends church two hours a month. So we, average person in Canada comes to, if they're a Christian, a gathering for two hours a month. But we're shaped by 150,000 ads per month. The question has to be, what is forming us? What we're doing this morning as we come around, word, spirit, bread in the cup, it's actually forming us. It's reforming us. It's counterforming us. And we've always been strong on the fact here that, listen, we're not going to beg people to come to church, but if you want to be spiritually formed by the way of Jesus, gathering to practice this thing is how it's done. You know, people often want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, but they don't want to do the things that fully devoted followers of Jesus do. 
And I had this happen countless times in youth ministry. End of the season, all this always happened. I'd have parents that would come up to me and they would say, why? Why isn't Johnny or Sally or whoever, why do they want nothing to do with the church? And honestly, it's because they haven't learned to love Jesus and love the church and love to do the things that Jesus did. They love sports, activity, all of these things. None of these things are bad. But this was, my, this was my experience. They love sports, activities. This is what you put your time into. Video games, their phones. These were the things that were their habits. And you expect them just to love their church by coming once? It's, it's not going to happen because our habits orient our loves. But here's the beautiful thing in all this. You can actually reorient your loves through your habits, especially with things like your love for the church. You can re, so some of you have done this. You ate a certain way and you craved eating a certain way that wasn't so good and this is my life right now, right? But you made a decision to eat good things and after a while, your habits reoriented your love for a particular kind of food. This for me was with running. So I, I began long distance running when I started college and because I want to look like Mark Wahlberg, right? And it's just, just what it is. It just it hasn't happened, but maybe someday. It's all good. And I would run and I hated it. I hated running. I hated it. And many of you guys know that after years of running, now I love it. My habit has reoriented my love for something. It can, it can happen. And I would say even for the church, the practices and habits can shape us. So even things like our, our communities, I can't tell you how formative these things are. Things like eating around the table together, my kids are formed and shaped. The spiritual disciplines that we're entering into through like prayer and scripture, silence and solitude, fasting, all of these things begin to shape us. Now here's the thing, I don't like formulas and I don't think the way of Jesus is a formula, obviously, but I do think here's how transformation happens. The work of the Spirit in someone's life combined with communal practices, which we just walked through, combined with individual practices over the course of time or the long road, I believe will create fully formed followers of Jesus. So a lot of churches, their mission or their vision is we want to create fully formed followers of Jesus, fully deep followers of Jesus. And the question always has to be, well, how's that going to happen? Well, this is how it's going to happen. The work of the Spirit in our lives combined with the communal practices that we practice that we've just talked through that have shown that we can actually do this and be shaped into Jesus' likeness. The individual practices of doing what Jesus did, which is a number of things that we practice that Jesus did, we believe over time, over the long road, over hardship and struggle, over time, that this will create fully formed followers of Jesus. This is what Paul, I think, would call sanctification. Over the long road, and can I be honest with you? This is super compelling. If I was part of a church, you know, so many people want to grow and change. That's amazing. But what about formation? What about the long road? What about, this kind of, what about this kind of life of following Jesus? And my observation is that many Christians, many of us don't have any intention of looking different or more like Jesus 20 years from now than what we do right now in this moment. But I think actually doing this, the work of the Spirit, communal practices, individual practices, what it's doing is it's preparing us for the new earth. As Jesus returns, I think actually we, we lean and we become more like Jesus over time. This is part of it. Dallas Willard, he put it like this. We're almost done, I promise. 
He said, true Christ-likeness, true companionship with Christ comes at the point where it is hard not to respond as he would. True companionship with Christ creates this life within us where down the road of practicing this over and over, we would be people that would actually respond as he would. You know, here's the thing with sports analogies, and I've used that over the last couple of weeks with formation. It's interesting because with sports analogies, you practice and you practice and you practice, and here's the thing. There's an expiry date, right? So I'm becoming friends right now. He's 33 years old. He played in the NHL, played a little bit for Buffalo and Vancouver. His kid plays hockey with mine. And he just returned to Canada this year, and he's done. His career is done. 30 before most people even really start their lives in their career and vocation, he's done. He's retired, a shoulder injury. He had a great, he was a journeyman in the AHL, played in Europe, great guy. And I get thinking, you know, some of these athletic things, there's actually an expiry date, right? I think my uh, beer league recreational hockey goalie, he put it like this. His name is John Wickens. He put it like this. He said this, all of us end up here anyway. And what he means is all of us end up playing rec league hockey, and all of us end up eating too much pizza and drinking too much beverage after a game uh, when we get together, right? All of us. We have players that have played junior hockey, high levels of hockey, and as John Wickens would say, all of us end up here anyway. I love it. It's just a great picture that there, there's actually an expiry date. But here's the thing with the kingdom of God. As apprentices of Jesus, it's different because we grow and we grow and we're formed into Christ-likeness. And I think I said last week, we have a severe lack of the theology of aging in the church right now. While our culture is enamored with the young and the cool and the sexy, the Bible actually speaks of a life. Life is something that actually gains equity over time. Not just money equity, but growing in wisdom, our habits, growing in Christ-likeness. Honestly, the last few weeks, there's been a part of me that actually longs to grow into this so much. I mean, I hope it doesn't go fast. Anybody with me? Right? But I can't wait for the day where after following Jesus and being formed into his likeness over time, I could actually look a heck of a lot more like him then than I do now. And there's part of me that can't wait for this day. You know, 20 years from now or whenever, however long you let us hang out here, Heather and I, um, and we pass this thing on. You know, my hope is, is that we could be a part of this community and we could be, you know, whether it's on the door, maybe I'll be the trailer guy. I'll, I'll drive the trailer, whatever you let me do. But I can't wait to be someone who looks like Jesus a lot more then because I've lived a life over time that's filled with the Spirit, practiced in community, practiced the individual practice, and has been shaped into the likeness of Christ over and over. And like you right now, I'm a mixed bag, right? I'm a mixed bag of good and not so good, of good fruit at times and other times not so good fruit. Just ask Heather, right? But I think one of the things that we want to see happen here is that this community exists to lead us on a journey of formation. And a lot of people are not thinking about this. They want change and they want to change big time, but there's no quick fixes. It's long it's hard, but the end goal is to be with Jesus and to practice the things that he did. Imagine reaching a, a world in a city for Jesus, but at the end of it being the same. You know, I think as we go deep with God, we go wide. 
And so formation has been this thing where over time we believe Jesus is taking us in a direction where when he's ready to return, we would look more like him. You with me?